Welcome everybody to Love Curvy Yoga, the podcast that's all about the intersection between yoga and body acceptance. Today my guest is the delightful Susan Piper. I've been a fan of Susan's work for years for lots of reasons, but primarily because I think in a lot of ways we share a similar mission, and that is to make things accessible to folks who otherwise might not think it's for them. And Susan does this so beautifully with meditation. I'm really excited because I know that lots of you have dabbled in meditation or are interested in giving it a try. So I think we're going to have a really great conversation about how to invite it into your life. So welcome, Susan. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So I wanted to start with a question I've been starting a lot of these conversations with, which is, what was your relationship with your body like as a young person? Um, it was very conflicted and complicated and fraught with, you know, the most prosaic and common things. Like I, mm. like I just hated the way I looked. And, you know, I, this was too big. That was too small. This is too fat. This is too weird. I, I don't know. I just mm-hmm. I couldn't see myself, and I had, but that that kind of grew to a weird close when I was in my late 20s I was in a really bad wreck mm-hmm. and I was really scarred and I finding a way to like how I looked became just a whole different thing and even you know to this day so many years later I I'm reminded of it every time I see myself, basically, with no clothes on, and mm-hmm. any time I grieve, even, because the injury left a lot of scar tissue and blah, blah, blah around my diaphragm, so mm-hmm. I feel it with my breath, and so that that was strange. That remains strange, but it puts mm-hmm. it in a different context than... I still have that. I think I'm too fat. I think I'm too this. I think I'm too that. You know, but it, it sort of made all that seem a little not as interesting. <laughs> right. What helped or does help you with that process since the accident? Well, love. Mm. Just being loved and loving really helps. I, I, I have... Uh, like a few days before the accident, and uh, these images really stick in my mind because, well, I don't know, for obvious reasons, I guess, but a few days before this accident, I was at a lake swimming, and I had pictures of myself in a bikini. Mm. And, you know, just, I was happy, I was smoking, I was a smoker at the time. Yeah. And I, I, then just a few days later, that was gone. All of that was gone. Wow. And, you know, the, I have, Anyway, so it, it was just this very abrupt, like being thrown into a different body, really. And, you know, making friends with it took a long time. But, but love helped. Love is the only thing that helped. Yeah. Kind of having to begin that relationship again in a lot of ways, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did meditation come into your life? Um... Not too long after that, um, 
a year or two after that, I was, I just was always an avid reader. So I read about all sorts of things and I just started reading a book that real, actually, you know what? I read this book at Kripalu mm. and this is like 20 years ago. So it was sort of even before, you know, oh, going to Kripalu, that's like a fun thing to do with your girlfriends or whatever. Right. It's like a weird thing to do. Like maybe you're going to join a cult or something. Right. <laughs> So, and it was different. There was still, the gurus still lived there, and it was just a different vibe. But anyway, yeah. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't care anything about that. But I, I was there because my brother said, yoga might help you heal. Wow. Because I really was very, very, very injured, Anna. I had a lot of internal organ damage and blah, blah, and broken bones and so on. Wow. So I went to Kapalu and start, and I did yoga for the first time, and I still have yoga practice, you know, all these years later. Mm. And it really, really, really helped me to relax with what was, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you yeah. that. But I was reading a book that I just happened to bring with me called The Heart of the Buddha, because I just like the title. Mm-hmm. And it was by Chogyam Trungpa, a Tibetan meditation master whose lineage I now study in. And that book just kind of stopped my mind it just I was like whoa (laughs) uh, somewhere around here is finally making some sense oh yeah so I thought well I better learn to meditate so it sounds like your meditation like yoga had sort of paved the pathway in some ways for you to receive that book is that true um you mean to receive it on an inner level yes yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I, I would say that's right I never thought of it that way but it did and it developing some sort of conscious relationship with my body, not to try to, you know, think it was hot or or even to think, even to feel healthy, mm-hmm. just to have a connection to my body. When it felt good, when it felt bad, when I didn't know where it was, I could reconnect with it. And that really helped me understand what meditation could do for your mind because it gives you a relationship to your mind in the same way as yoga does with your body. And, you know, obviously at some level they're not separate, but right. still we, we, even when our body is doing one thing, we may not know where our mind is. That's just so true. So it helps with that. Yeah, I don't feel like I've heard that articulated quite so clearly before. I really like that yoga does the connection with the body and meditation with the mind. I know, yeah, well... They both mean union in some way, right? Right. Yoga means union, union of body and mind. And meditation is often called the practice of synchronizing body and mind. Mm. So I think they just start from different ends of a single spectrum, perhaps. Right, and then they start to kind of overlap at some point in yes. some ways. Yeah. So I know that you do a lot of work helping to open this door for people into meditation. Um, I would love to hear about, um, I feel like you debunk it a little bit, the scariness of meditation. So I'm wondering, um, what are kind of the top three reasons that people tell you that they can't meditate? (laughs) You've got to have a long list, I would imagine. I I do. I love it. And there's one that immediately, this is the one that everybody says, and, you know, two and three are distant, second and third. I can't meditate because I can't stop thinking. Ah, yes, I want to talk more about that. <laughs> Duh! 
you don't have to stop thinking yeah. in order to meditate. So I hear that, and then, you know, I hear the very, very reasonable and understandable, I don't have time. Yeah. Of course, nobody has time. I'm not, you know, nobody, it's true. Yeah. But still, there's a way. And, you know, maybe the third one is something that is not quite as, like, it's like a myth. It's not a myth. This one is not a myth. This is something that people actually need and can find real help with. And that third thing is, it hurts. Mm, yeah. And so, well, maybe I'll add a fourth, too, which is, I don't know if I'm doing it right, so I just sort of give up. Yeah, that's a good one. I'll stop there. <laughs> so let's dig into that first one. Where do you think that idea came from that you have to stop your mind? I don't know, but some some combination of like movies and Deepak Chopra and I mean I'm not dissing Deepak Chopra, but sure that ilk of and, and, and some advertising that shows images of sort of blissed out yoginis and meditators that just look like they don't have a, anything going on in their mind. And also, I will say that for many years, up until fairly recently, the most predominant form of meditation in the West was transcendental meditation. Mm, right. And it's still quite, quite prevalent. But that was, there is instruction there of, in, to quiet the mind, to stop the mind. And, and yoga even, you know, what is the one of the, I can't remember what it's called, but sutras, I guess? Oh, yeah, yoga sutra. Yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. Exactly. Yeah. The fluctuations of mind. So so you think, oh, well, I'm supposed to stop thinking. Right. And maybe so, but if you just say, yell at yourself, okay, now stop thinking. Right. It, it doesn't work, but the cessation. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> cessation happens on its own when you make space for things to be as they are. Right. So instead of trying to tell yourself to shut up, if you tune in to the flow, the discursive flow, that's sometimes really brilliant, sometimes funny, sometimes confusing, sometimes vicious and horrible, sometimes and mostly, let's face it, boring. Mm-hmm. When you sort of just allow, tune into that flow, it's like you you step away from it to tune into it, and as you step away, there's this sense of like watching clouds in the sky, and maybe some are stormy and dark, and some are wispy and far away, but you just see they all pass, and it, it's not really it doesn't really matter. I mean, it matters on one level, but mm-hmm. there's no sense that this cloud is permanent. Right. So you just that's what the that's where the peace comes from, is just from watching. I don't mean in a cold way, but being with the movement of the mind as opposed to turning your back on the movement of the mind. Right. And how does that for you start to show up in your off the cushion practice in your everyday life? Well that's a great that's a great question, and that's the the question because you know maybe you could sit down to meditate and become a great meditator, and I would say 
good for you. <laughs> and so what? Because, yeah, so maybe you're great at clearing your mind of thought, quote-unquote, even though you don't have to do that, and focusing on the breath and feeling calm. But that, okay, whatever. But the point of the practice is not to be good at meditating. It's to be good at being yourself. Hmm. So when you get off the cushion, you can carry with you this sense of holding your mind with a lighter touch so that when you encounter, you know, the events of your day, whether they're like irritating road ragey things or horrible news about some, someone you love or fantastic lightning strike of great news that you weren't anticipating or just the everyday conventional things that happen, throughout all of that, you can still hold your mind up with a little bit of looseness. And that is of incalculable value mm-hmm. because when you can do that and someone makes you mad, you don't punch them in the face. You don't think, this is your fault. Or you may notice that you're thinking, this is your fault, but you don't really believe it, even though you may be quite consumed with it and it's very real. It only goes so deep. And I think that's what Buddhists mean by detachment, that you don't, they don't mean not feeling. They mean being able to hold all of your feelings from the most extraordinary intensity to the most subtle and delicate with this kind of lightness. That's the detachment piece. Yeah, I love how you talk about the difference between, or what maybe what's sort of come for you through your meditation practice of it's not about not feeling, it's about you feel everything. Yeah. Yeah, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, it it's, it's, can be quite disconcerting. You know, the biggest misconception about meditation is that you're supposed to, make, means you have to stop thinking. The second biggest is that it will make you peaceful. Mm. Because it won't. <laughs> it will, in a sense, it will give you this sense of stability within your own experience, which is wonderful and has a peaceful quality to it. But in sitting with your experience as it rises and falls on the cushion, what that means is it's not that you're clinically got a little mental clipboard and you're taking notes. It means you're feeling your experience. And as it arises, you're not trying to push it away or hold on to it. And when it starts to dissolve, you let go without pushing it away or trying to, you know, do it too fast. So what that means, there's nothing clinical about that. That's a heart opening. Right. Open your heart to your own experience. And that has the effect of immediately opening your heart to other people's experience and to the events of this world. And the events of this world can be quite horrific and painful and sad and, you know, I don't have to explain what I mean by that. Right. So you're touched and you're, you're more responsive. So rather than making you more implacable, you know, more untouchable, meditation makes you more authentic. And authenticity has a magnetizing power that puts you on your path. Otherwise, you're walking someone else's path until you can find that ground of authentic feeling. You're on a conceptual path that someone else told you you should be on, even if it's a great one. And maybe it's the perfect one for you, but you still don't know it until you can actually 
feeling. Right. So if I could have one wish for our worlds, the worlds of yoga and meditation and spiritual practice altogether, it would be to return a sense of the magic and importance of feeling. Oh, I got chills. <laughs> yeah. So much of what happens in our worlds, it, it almost seems like it's designed to, you know, just take the feeling out of you. Right. Like you should just be some sort of, you know, don't be so attached. If anyone ever says that to me again, I'm going to just... <laughs> <laughs> just mindfully do it, right? <laughs> but in a Buddhist loving way. <laughs> you know, don't be so attached. Or why, you, you know, if you feel things strongly, that's some, some evidence of the failure of your practice. And I could not disagree more. I'm right there with you. I feel like with my yoga practice, what has happened is a similar sort of sensitization process to my own body and to the world. And that feels like where it's at, you know, in terms of being able to connect and accept both myself and other people and just be present with what's happening. Well, that sounds so right and so good. And your students are lucky because when you can be sensitive to your own body and your own experience of inhabiting a body, which happens to be yours in this case, right. it, that, extent, that sensitivity naturally extends to the experience of others without t knocking you off of your seat. Right. Yeah. That's what makes a good teacher, I think. Well, and it feels like what's necessary for those of us who want to engage in the world in any way like how do you do that without being connected first with yourself right I agree that's a good question and yet who teaches you how to have that connection to yourself and right. how to trust it right what do you find is there something in your meditation practice that helps you with that trusting process the practice itself is what helps. Mm, yeah. I'm sure it's the same for you in your yoga practice. It's you show up on your mat or your cushion and you meet your practice every day or every month or however often it is you're able to do your practice and, and you reconnect with it. It's like being in a relationship and the relationship just has ups, it has downs, it, it goes on unexpected places, it bores you, it, it develops new, you know, aspects that you didn't expect and and it's you know it's exciting it's boring and, and all the blah blah all of it and so but being in that relationship is very increases your trust and also and, and I'd be curious if this if you notice this in your practice but for me the more I practice not even the quantity but the better the quality of my practice the more I notice a kind of congruence between my inner life and my outer circumstances. Mm. If there's more synchronicity, there's more things being mirrored back to me, there's more uh, you know, things that are in a context that happen to be meaningful to me in that particular moment. So I find that very, very trustworthy. When I don't feel that so, as strongly, I feel kind of disconnected from my life and 
But when my practice is going well, I feel that much stronger connection. Like I'm in a kind of a flow, not necessarily it feels good or bad, but just I feel like, oh, this something's ha- some, this is a path, something, this is going somewhere. Yeah, I do notice that. And I also notice what you mentioned earlier, which is um, I feel that I'm more aware of my kind of internal conversation, and that makes whatever's happening good, bad, and different sort of knock me back and forth a little bit less than it used to. So with an example of my relationship to my body, for years I would get really quickly into a negative body spiral, kind of like no matter what happened. Like I was stressed out or I was excited. Like it didn't matter. It would just like really quickly get me into that place of thinking, okay, great. So I should go on a diet and change my body and then my life will really be wonderful. Um, And now it's not that those thoughts never come but that when they do, I'm like, oh, yeah, this again. And it sort of, like, doesn't – I don't have to actually go on the diet. Like, I can just have that thought and then be like, oh, right, this isn't, like, a thing that's helpful for me. So I'm just going to sort of set this to the side. And that's been really life-changing. I can only imagine. That is so great. That is so great. You, you, so you're holding it in, with, in the right way. You're not getting mad at yourself. Right. You're not trying to change it, but you're nor are you trying to follow it. You're just going, oh, there's that thing again, that that red flag that I recognize. Yeah, I think it's really similar to what we talked about at the beginning about stopping thoughts. People will often say to me, like, well, you never feel bad about your body anymore, right? And I'm like, no. (laughs) That's that's not right at all. But, like... It's lessened, you know, I can for sure see the differences, but it's more like I can work with it more skillfully than anything. That's perfectly said. I totally, totally do that. Yeah. I am really interested in how in your meditation tradition, and correct me if I'm wrong, you sit with your eyes open. This feels so relevant to our conversation, but sort of in like a literal and metaphorical way. Oh, that's such a sensitive Good question. Yeah, it, it, it's an eyes open practice where your eyes are open and your gaze is cast slightly down. And so, you know, there's a kind of soft gaze in the eyes. And often I hear from students, well, I don't, that's too, I find it much easier, quote unquote, when my eyes are closed. And when I ask them, what do you mean by easier? They say less distracted or my eyes are open. I, I'm really self-conscious or I just feel too scattered and that all, that all makes complete sense and that all sounds right mm-hmm. and there's you know eyes closed practices and eyes open practices and they, they have just different qualities and there's a quality with an eyes closed practice of sort of withdrawing within which can be exactly what you need and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. However, when you open your eyes, you have to come back. And when you sit with your eyes open, you don't have to come back because you never went anywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's more ease in bringing your practice off the cushion. When you sit with your eyes open, there's less of a sense of transition from your meditation 
experience to your post-meditation experience, which is what <laughs> meditators call your whole entire life. called <laughs> your post-meditation experience. <laughs> so you can bring that mind of mindfulness and awareness with you. And finally, in my tradition, the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, there's a very much an emphasis on spiritual warriorship, mm-hmm. of your practice being for you, but not just for you. It is a way of bringing benefit to the world through this increased heart opening and greater fortitude in, in just standing in your own experience and therefore being able to help others be strong in their experience. Um, and it's, it's hard to be a warrior when your eyes are closed. Yeah. It's hard to be wakeful when your eyes are closed. And this is a practice of wakefulness, of waking up. And sometimes that feels great and sometimes it feels not so great. But still, we go forward with this intention to wake up. It's easier to wake up when your eyes are open. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, and it feels like what we were talking about earlier with waking up to and in your own life and being able to do that in the broader world as well. Right. Yeah. First in your own life, and then everything is possible. But if you're yeah. still asleep, you know, we're all still asleep in some ways, but if you're more asleep than not, then... It's just life becomes extremely confusing. Yeah. Could you talk a little, I know our people who are listening are going to be interested in this, and what you think are good first steps for getting started with meditation? Yes. Um, Well, the first is to, you know, learn from someone who has been authorized to teach it. Mm. And, you know, That's really important because meditation has been around for 2,500 years in the Buddhist tradition, and it's very, it's more than a self-help technique. Right. If you want to use it for self-help, that's fine. You can. It will help you. But it's actually a chance to jump off the self-help treadmill, which, you know, probably everyone's, you know, pretty good at self-help. (laughs) <laughs> already, but this is to take to do something that's not self-help is to do something spiritual, and to do something spiritual comes with a lot of confusion and darkness and lightness, and you, you know it's it's really helpful to have a meditation teacher, and that doesn't mean you have to have a guru or anything, just somebody that has been meditating longer than you, that has been trained to teach. And that is part of a tradition that is more than 2,500 years old. But that's my sort of line in the mm-hmm. Because we don't want something that someone made up in their house, you know, in 1998. Right. <laughs> you know, maybe it's great, but we want something trustworthy. When we're going to turn our, our heart and our mind over to a practice... We want it to be trustworthy. And of course, you can't abdicate. I'm not suggesting anybody could or should abdicate responsibility. But when you trust something for guidance, you want it to know that it is rooted and tested and honed, and you can have confidence in it. So that's what I would suggest. And, and in the Buddhist tradition, I don't know anything about other traditions, but 
of course, the Shambhala Buddhist lineage, I feel very happy, you know, referring people to because I know how great it is. Mm-hmm. But you can also go to a Zen center, a Vipassana center, which insight meditation is connected to Vipassana. You could learn mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is rooted in Vipassana. And these are really good practices, really trustworthy, good, good practices. Yeah, and it seems like there's more and more opportunities for people to find teachers these days in those traditions. Yes, we're, we're in a, while many, many things are, you know, going the wrong way in our world, this is one thing that's going the right way. More teachers, more teachings, more access to sacred wisdom than ever, I would say. Yeah. And how can people connect more with you and your good work? Is there anything you want us to know about that you have coming up? Yeah, thank you. Well, my main project is the Open Heart Project, which is... Which I love. I cannot recommend highly enough, everyone listening. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You've always been so kind and and supportive and and encouraging in this work for me. I I really appreciate it. It's... I start... It's it's free, and I send out two 10-minute meditations a week, Mondays and Thursdays, to anyone who wants them. Like, if I could come to your house, we could sit down, and I could guide you in a meditation is what it is meant to be. Yeah. And that it's preceded by like a two or three minute talk on something related to meditation. And so I, I love sharing that with people. And I think it's a good way to learn about the practice, try out the practice without having to go anywhere weird or do anything that might be you know, intimidating. Right. When it kind of breaks down the, concerns and reasons that people can't meditate that we talked about earlier it's short it's right there in your email inbox it's accessible it's great all you have to do is click play right it's That's pretty doable yeah. do. I'll do the rest yeah <laughs> so thank you so much for being here susan i loved our conversation and i'm so excited for everyone listening to connect more with you and we'll share all of your links and good information uh, with the podcast so thank you you're welcome and i love talking to you too and it's really good to connect actually voice to voice after all this time i know i love it okay Mm -hmm. thank you and thanks to everybody who's listening we will talk with you soon